0: Welcome to the Healthcare Hustle Podcast, a multimedia project intended to highlight the careers of leaders of color across the healthcare industry. Students, early professionals, and the community at large can expect to gain valuable, unapologetic insight on the career journeys of individuals whose lived experience and personal mission has been centered in advancing health equity. Thanks for listening. The Healthcare Hustle Podcast. Today, we are joined by Dr. Lemitra Scott, Director of Pharmacy for the Tennessee Department of Corrections and Chief Executive Officer of Breaking the Sickle Cell Foundation Incorporated. Dr. Scott, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Winston. It's a pleasure to be here.
2: We are uh, super excited to have you on the show today, Dr. Scott. And we're going to kick it off as we always do. Could you tell us and our listeners a little bit about your story, your journey? Start start at the beginning for us.
1: In the beginning, so yeah, in the beginning, um, I'm actually a, a native Memphian, I, I'm, I was born and raised in Memphis my entire life. And with the, I guess you can say, perception or persona that Memphis has, we have good barbecue, we have good music, um, a, a great time to be had, I will say. And then, you know, just as as there's good. Sides to every story. There's also the not so bright side to every story. And I think that that not so bright side that the public may know or that the people may know in general when you hear Memphis, those challenges are actually what develop the person into being who they are. And growing up in an environment as such, um, you grow to be resilient. You learn to make do with what you have. And in my childhood and growing up, That was definitely uh, a common theme of, you know, making do with what you had. Not to say that, you know, we didn't have things or we barely got by. And it's also not to say that we were, you know, living the lifestyles of the rich and famous, because that definitely was not it. But I do feel like that happy medium fostered some of those qualities that I have within me today in being resilient, able to bounce back. Um, And just go with the flow and making the best of your situation, no matter what it is, I think that is deeply instilled within me and is definitely something that I carry with me today.
0: I think that's something that, you know, definitely thank you for sharing number one, um, but definitely resonates with all of us just being able to take some of those factors from our immediate environment, whether they're good or not so good, but build them into parts of our character so I love that piece. Um, What was it that kind of inspired you to pursue this career in healthcare pharmacy um, to begin with? You know, how did you kind of get your foundations uh, in your career path?
1: Well, I can tell you this. We did not have any people in my family who were pharmacists. We did not have anybody in my family who owned a pharmacy. So let's just put that notion to the side. Um, My very early introductions into pharmacy and why it became of interest to me actually fostered from my grandmother. And I know everybody may be able to relate to this story whether it be your grandmother or an elderly person in your family, where they oftentimes have this big bag of medications. Because like most African-Americans, we are plagued with a number of comorbidities um, when it comes down to our health. So my grandmother was one of those persons who had her, her purse. It was filled with medicine bottles. And oftentimes when the question was asked of why do you take this medicine or that one, the answer was, well, I don't know, the doctor told me to. That is something that stuck with me for a number of years. And when I began to determine what is it that I wanted to do as a profession, pharmacy came to the forefront of my mind because I wanted to be able to do something to help people understand why they take certain medications or even empower them to ask the question of their healthcare provider, why am I taking this medicine? Because just because the doctor said so, that does not necessarily equate to, you have to continually take this, or you have to take this, you know, without any other regard, it's not a one and done. These are, health conditions are things that continually need to be checked on. And I think that when people are empowered to ask those questions of, why am I still taking this medicine? then it puts them in a position to take charge of their health and not necessarily be dictated to of how their health journey should be. So in a nutshell, my grandmother was one of the reasons that drove me to this space of being in pharmacy. And I wanted to help educate others, improve their own way of life in terms of their health and also help them understand when it comes to medications, you have a voice.
2: I think that's a really awesome story, and I, I know a lot of healthcare professionals have a family member who kind of inspired them along the way, and that's uh, really touching that you shared that with us. Um, starting out though, I mean, did you have any considerations around pursuing any other careers in, in medicine? You know, I know, I know for me, I wanted to be a sports doctor originally because I hurt my knee playing football, and that's what I saw, and that's what I thought was cool, um, I wasn't even aware that a pharmacist was a, a job. I always just assumed it was someone at the place who gave out the medication. So mm-hmm. were there any other considerations for you along the way, or was it always pharmacy?
1: Um, well, I can tell you this. I've always been one of those forward thinking people. So when I was in high school, I used to have a free period and more pe- most people would take their free period. they go to study hall and they'd be playing around and stuff. But for me, I took my free period and I worked in the guidance office. In the guidance office is where I got all the information on scholarships what colleges you could go to so while I was there I just started to peruse through the occupational handbook to look at different things that I thought would be of interest to me and actually I thought I was going to be a social worker so when I go back and I look at my yearbook from high school when I graduated and you write in there like how many kids you'll have who you'll be married to what kind of job you'll have well my job said I was going to be a social worker I was going to have three kids, and none of that is true. Um, When I started doing my research into what it entailed to be a social worker, my hat goes off to all social workers everywhere. And after I read about their job description, I felt like I would be too intertwined. I wouldn't be able to separate myself from the families that I would be tasked with helping. So, because I know that that is my weakness, my weak point, because I've been trying to help everybody and take all the kids home and fix everybody's situation, I quickly understood that maybe that's not the skill set or the profession for me because I know what my weakness is. So, outside of that, you know, in my own personal experiences is kind of where pharmacy came into play. So those were really the only two choices for me that I thought that I'd be pursuing as a career. It was either social work, or I was going to be a pharmacist, I really didn't think about any other options.
0: I think that's, I wish I was that, you know, kind of centered and focused (laughs) (laughs) coming out of, you know, high school and going into college. But You know, one thing that, you know, Dr. Scott, I think I can hear as well as Nigel, you know, just from some of the things you've shared so far is definitely your passion, um, your commitment and your advocacy. And so, you know, we'll talk, you know, about the sickle cell work a little bit later on, but to continue to kind of just focus on your career as a pharmacist for a second. You know, out of curiosity, what led you to end up now being the director of pharmacy for the Tennessee Department of Corrections, Um, the justice population and the intersectionality between that population in healthcare is something that we have continued to want to explore because it's definitely not talked about a lot. Um, so we feel lucky to be able to have you, you know, have you and have your expertise. So can you just kind of speak to how this opportunity came about, and then what has the experience been like um, since you've been serving in the position?
1: Well, I can tell you this: food drives a lot of people's decisions. So if you ever want to get somebody to make a decision, give them some food. And I say that because. While I was in pharmacy school, and you know, all students are mostly broke, at least I was. I was one of those broke students. So whenever somebody was giving out free food for lunch, that's where I was because that meant I didn't have to spend money for lunch. So one day I went to um, a lunch symposium that was being put on by one of the organizations on campus, and they had a guest speaker that was there. This guest speaker was talking about um, her job in managed care. She didn't work the traditional hospital setting. She didn't work in retail. She worked in an office building. She got to do travel, go all around the world. And I was like, man, that would be a really cool job to have. She worked at one of our uh, PBMs or prescription benefit managers. That's She worked for one of those major companies. And after I had my lunch, listened to her talk, that's what piqued my interest into managed care. Well, I started looking at my options that were available for pursuing a managed care career field or residency for that matter. Um, And we had one residency that was available in Tennessee that I could select from. Now things are much, much different. But back then when I was going through the process, pickings were very, very small. So I saw this one place that was listed and I was like, man, they only take one person like per year. What are the chances of me actually getting into this residency program? And the residency program was actually a place that centered around managed care in the correctional health care field. So that's how I segued into it because I wanted to do managed care. And then I looked to see what were my options in terms of doing advanced training in managed care pharmacy. And that place that offered it just so happened to be a place that did correctional managed care. So because, again, I'm one of those astute and intuitive type persons, once I realized that what the residency options were, then I went back to see how I could get exposure to them to increase my chances of getting this residency. And that was where I found that they actually had a rotation that my school participated in. So I could actually select that location to do a one month rotation in and get more exposure to what exactly managed care healthcare is in the correctional setting. So I went there for that one month. And sometimes it's almost like going on a, when they say going on a, on a date and you meet somebody and then it's like love at first sight. Well, this job that I went to, it was one of the, the places that I felt like this is where I'm supposed to be. Everything clicked. My preceptors clicked. The coworkers clicked. It was just It wasn't time for me to work yet because I was a third year pharmacy student at that time. It wasn't time for me to graduate. But what I did was that I got my foot in the door and I got my name in rotation. I did a really good job while I was there. So the next year when it was time for residencies to come around and for me to apply, this place they already knew who I was because of my prior experience that I had with them. So I still, I went through the interview process, everything worked out. And I was able to match up and I got a residency doing managed care pharmacy at a correctional uh, pharmacy benefit manager. So what I've learned in this space is that um, mental health is something that I, I feel like we just don't put enough emphasis on. We put a lot of emphasis on chronic conditions that impact a person's physical health. But what I have seen in the justice involved population is that mental health is so, so, so important in terms of helping people manage and cope. And I say that because everybody that goes to jail doesn't necessarily, it's not necessarily there because they committed a crime. Some people do have serious mental health issues that have not been appropriately addressed on the community side. And this person may have done an action that landed them in prison. But that wasn't the underlying, like that negative action was not necessarily underlying cause. It's because this person had a mental health condition that was not appropriately treated. So what I can say is um, from the justice involved population is that mental health care is a large portion of what the budget is spent on. Making sure that people are, are, I guess you could say, sane enough or stable enough so they're not committing harm to themselves or others. And there have been, there are some really sick people in this world. Um, So, yeah, that's a, in a nutshell, I can say mental health is one of the biggest aspects of providing justice-involved care, in addition to your other chronic disease states. So a lot of people may forget that just because people go to prison or go to jail, you don't just lock them up and throw away the key there are other aspects and things that have to be taught you actually want to rehabilitate people because people get out of prison they come back and to be productive members of society and when you want people to come back to society you actually want them to come back better than they were when they went in so that means they are required to get their mental health treatment their actual physical health treatment In addition to learning a trade or a skill, because, again, you want them to be viable, productive citizens. You don't want them committing crimes and getting back into the system. So it is a a total rehabilitative process that people go through while they're incarcerated.
2: Wow. There's a there's a lot there, I think, for us to kind of unpack and get into. And I, I know Winston's gonna have a ton of questions. I wanna kind of roll it back just, just a little bit for people. Would you explain what exactly managed care uh looks like and what what you do day to day in your job for people?
1: So a managed care pharmacist, it's kind of like you take the skills that you may have on a one-on-one basis when you go to your regular corner store pharmacy or you work with your community pharmacist, that's a one-on-one relationship. When you're in managed care, I manage the population right now of 25,000 individuals, not necessarily a one-on-one relationship. So the decisions that I make, if I tell Ms. Jones, Ms. Jones, you may not want to take your blood pressure medicine, you know, or these two medications may interact with each other. Or when you're making your formulary decisions, meaning you pick which of the medications that are offered for your program, which one would be most advantageous for you? So now I'm not making a decision just for Ms. Jones. My decisions that I make now are applicable to 25,000 people. So when I say, when we talk about formulary management and when I decide whether or not something should be a preferred medication or a non-preferred medication, I didn't just make that decision for one person. I made that decision for everybody in our system and it will impact everybody in our system. So that's what managed care looks like. It looks like managing population health and the decisions that you make impact an entire system versus just one person.
0: Wow, thank you um, for that explanation. Uh, I think, you know, some folks are definitely gonna uh, take a lot away with that because I think, you know, when it comes to career paths and just how people want to set themselves up, sometimes it's a conflict between, okay, do I go the, you know, in-house inpatient hospital side? Do I go to the retail side? You know, what's more lucrative, what's going to make more impact. And I think you kind of just expose people to a pathway that may not have been, you know, as, as known and as popular, um, particularly within the pharmacy industry. So I think that is really awesome. And I kind of want to, um, you know, transition us into talking about your work with breaking the sickle cell cycle, and um, you know, your experience with, with Ricky, and just how that has been, um, for you, um, for over a decade now, right? Yeah, uh, yeah which is which is flies.
1: It doesn't seem like it's been <laughs> two years, but it's been ten years.
0: Yeah. So, so, you know, your, your story with, you know, being a a, a mother um, and a parent to a child with sickle cell while also being a professional, um, you know, and, and, and balancing that just, can you kind of just tell us, you know, how did this journey start for you? Um, You kind of spoke to some of the things uh, before we officially hit it off, Um, but just, yeah. How, how has everything been? Well, I
1: could say life, is never predictable. And I think, so, I think I've think i heard a quote once or twice where people say, if you wanna make God laugh, tell him your plans. Because that's exactly what happened. I had a plan that my life was gonna be one way, but God saw fit for me to do something different that involved me having a child with sickle cell disease and starting a non-profit organization. That was not on my plan. That was not in my forecast by any means. But I do know that we all come to this earth with a higher calling. And sometimes, you know, we're on that quest to find what exactly is that calling or what exactly is my purpose? So when my son was diagnosed, yes, it did catch me off guard. I was not prepared for work one because I didn't even know that I was a sickle cell trait carrier. We didn't know that my son's father was a sickle cell trait carrier. Um, I didn't know a whole lot about sickle cell disease in regards to its prevalence and how common it is amongst African Americans. And I can say that no matter how many letters you have before or after your name, if you have not been, you know, tested or you haven't had that exposure to even let you know that, you know, this even exists, then you you can't know what you don't know. And I tell that to people all the time, that it doesn't matter whether or not you feel like, well, we don't have people in my family who have sickle cell. How do you know? Because in the Black community, chronic illnesses like mental health, sickle cell disease, those are things that aren't really talked about. But we'll talk about diabetes. We'll talk about hypertension. We'll talk about those things all day long, because it seems like those things are more commonly accepted within our community. But when you start talking about things that may have a negative connotation to them because people don't fully understand them, like mental health illness, that has a negative connotation, I think, because people don't fully understand. The mind or your brain is an organ. It needs the same things as your heart does, your liver, your lungs. It needs that same type of care that any other part of your body, and when you start neglecting it, it will show. And sometimes that shows up in mental health conditions and they have to be addressed. But sometimes people don't wanna talk about those things. They don't wanna have those tough conversations. And as far as sickle cell disease goes, for a long time, people didn't necessarily wanna talk about sickle cell disease because that meant it was somebody who was in the hospital a lot. They complained about pain a lot. This is not somebody that you can really rely on. There were a ton of negative conversation circling around sickle cell disease all because people didn't fully understand it and you can't support what you don't understand so instead of subjecting themselves to this judgment i would say from the community people just decided to say okay we'll handle this at home we won't tell anybody about this so now we get this perpetuation of more people being born with sickle cell disease so after my son was born um after the the shock came about And I had to decide on what am I gonna do? Am I gonna continue to feed into this negativity that's surrounding sickle cell disease in our community? Or am I gonna do something different? And as you can tell, I've done things differently a lot along my path in this journey called life. So I decided that we're not gonna sit on the sidelines And have a pity party and say, woe is me and expecting people to feel sorry for us because I felt like that was not going to be the best representation of how to handle this for my son because children replicate what they see their parents do. So I wanted to show my son how he could have sickle cell disease and still be strong, still be resilient, still achieve the things that he wants to achieve in life, even with having sickle cell disease. So that is where we began the journey of my why in terms of why I do this, how I got to this point was, okay, God, you allowed this stuff to happen in my life. And and I started to look at the the big picture, the big picture, meaning I'm in healthcare. What I did for my job on a day-to-day basis was talk about disease state management. We talk about, again, population management. So I helped healthcare providers develop guidelines of treating various disease states and how do they do this in an economic fashion without compromising patient care? So, you again, when there are pharmacy budgets and medication budgets in place, you have to provide adequate, equitable care to patients, but you don't have a blank check. So, you don't want to prescribe things or suggest things that could compromise their health care. So, I took that same skill set of what I did on a day-to-day basis in talking about disease state management and the disease I decided to focus on was sickle cell disease. So I took that skill set that I use in my day-to-day job, I took it to this nonprofit organization and I decided that this was my passion, my route, because I saw this huge gap of education and knowledge. The gap was in the community because I was one of those one in 13 African-Americans who did not know their sickle cell trait and in addition, there was a gap on the healthcare side. I didn't tell you this part of the story. My son was actually misdiagnosed. So there's a newborn screening that is done for all children born in the United States right now. And that newborn screening can sometimes come back with false negative information because of the way hemoglobin is made in the body. During the early, I would say first eight six to eight weeks, the body makes what's called fetal hemoglobin. That's the part of the hemoglobin, or hemoglobin is responsible for carrying oxygen in the red blood cell. So, that hemoglobin does not sickle. Well, after, after about that eight week time frame, the body begins to make hemoglobin A, which is normal hemoglobin. It's not the fetal hemoglobin anymore. Well, in the case of sickle cell disease, that hemoglobin A is not hemoglobin A, it's actually hemoglobin S because there is a defective gene. So that protein that's supposed to make hemoglobin A, it it doesn't, it makes hemoglobin S. Well, if you take the test too early, meaning beyond before that eight week time period, you could get a false negative because then you're only pulling out and you're you're only getting results for hemoglobin F. There is no hemoglobin S, so you get a false negative. Well, I knew all of this and I had shared that information with the pediatrician that we were using And my son, we actually waited till about maybe 10 or 11 weeks before he went to get confirmation screening. That's what it's called. um, If there's a possibility that your child could have sickle cell disease. Well, I never knew the results of that initial newborn screen. That's the test that is done when the baby is, is born straight out. I never got those results. Well, because I knew we would have to do confirmation screening. So I took him in to get his confirmation screening. That particular provider, she called me back. She says, oh, I've got great news. Your son doesn't have sickle cell disease. He only has sickle cell trait. He's fine. Well, lo and behold, that was not correct. I got a phone call from someone at the health department that was calling me saying, hey, we need you to bring your child in for a confirmation screening. And I couldn't understand why. And I was like, well, we've already done this. I've got the results back. He's fine. And they said, no, Ms. Scott, he actually screened for a hemoglobin S on the newborn screen. Um, and we needed you to come in and start him on prophylactic therapy. Well, this is a huge ordeal for me, as you can see, because one minute I'm thinking my son is fine. He has no complications or issues. And then the very next minute, he has his diagnosis of this chronic illness. So, as you can see, it felt like I had the rug snatched from underneath me in terms of what am I going to do at this point. So, I say all that to say there was a huge gap on the educational side for healthcare providers as well. And what I've come to find out is that provider was not the exception to the rule when it comes down to the understanding of sickle cell disease in the healthcare community. There are a vast number of healthcare providers that are not knowledgeable about sickle cell disease. And that is definitely, um, I would say a disparity, a healthcare disparity um, that many people with sickle cell disease face. In terms of one, getting people to believe them that they have sickle cell disease when they show up to get care, just trying to get care because there are not a lot of sickle cell centers or places that specialize in sickle cell disease to even offer that treatment. So put all these things together with this huge gap in care on the community side, on the um, healthcare provider side, combining that with my personal experiences and what I do as a professional healthcare professional in disease state management and a whole lot of prayer. And you've got breaking the Sickle Cell Cycle Foundation was born. Um, So that's my story in a nutshell and how things have been um, since my son has been here these 10 years. It's been a roller coaster. And I will tell you that because many of the complications that one can experience early on with sickle cell disease, we've experienced them. And what I tell people is that you have to just take one day at a time. All of these complications, they are are there because they are possibilities. So you don't want to negate or turn a blind eye to them because that would just be crazy and foolish. But also know that it's one day at a time and you deal with what's happening today. Even if the bottom falls out, you have to hit the, you know, you have to land at some point. So in that process of falling, embrace the fall. And I say that because you never know when a sickle cell pain crisis is going to occur and you end up going to the hospital for a clinic visit and you end up staying there for two weeks. You don't know, you just be prepared and stay in the moment. And that preparation begins as early as six months old. But today, my son is doing fine. Um, we deal with things as they come on a day-to-day basis. We've dealt with hospitalizations. He's had acute chest syndrome, which is a common complication of sickle cell disease um, for, for young children. Um, pain crises are, you know, a, a commonality. But, you know, there are things that we can do at home to mitigate those things. I so that he doesn't end up in the hospital you know so frequently he's had to have a couple of blood transfusions again these are all things that you just navigate in the moment that they occur and then you keep it moving what what, how does the song go i've had more good days than i've had bad days so i won't complain that is where i am with it
2: wow uh that's an amazing journey and an amazing story and uh just really impressive that you were able to turn something that, for a lot of people, would have been c- kind of the end of the road. To be honest, you know, like that would have, that would be rough news as a new parent. Um, as you said, it's tough to navigate, even for you as a healthcare professional who does this on a day-to-day basis. So I, I'm always so impressed with how people navigate these these situations. And something that's already scary, having a child is is already scary, and there's a lot that mm-hmm. goes into that. Um, so just an amazing, amazing story. Thank you for sharing. Um, Could you explain a little bit about what exactly your foundation does and how that has changed over time as you guys have kind of grown and expanded?
1: Sure. So the mission of the foundation is to promote, prevent, um, and raise awareness about sickle cell disease in our community among at-risk populations. And I define at-risk as anybody, no matter what color, race, or creed you identify as. Anybody who has not been sickle cell trait tested, that is what—that is our mission, is to raise sickle cell disease awareness in, in those populations. So when we started, that was my whole thing. I wanted to help other people not have to walk this path if they didn't have to. And all I had to do was raise awareness to let people know sickle cell disease, it does exist. Because a lot of people think that sickle cell disease was cured a long time ago. That's not necessarily true. That is a very wrong narrative. And a lot of people also feel like, well, nobody's in my family that has sickle cell disease, so I don't have to worry about that. That's not true either. So I felt like if we raised awareness about what this disease is, who is impacted by it, and offer them a way to obtain sickle cell trait testing, um, that would be my due diligence of paying it forward. That would be my way of breaking this cycle is educating people about what they have, you know, what's in their genetic, what's in their genes, giving them that information and empowering them to make decisions. Make decisions regarding what you want to do with your ch- with your family planning because you have options. When you don't know that information, that is what makes you turn a blind eye to feel like you don't have to make a decision about anything. You just let it happen however it happens. But once you are empowered with that educational information about your DNA, you can now make decisions. That's how we started. I started with just, you know, working with local churches, doing some health fairs and the like, talking about sickle cell disease. Well, over time, things have evolved. And now um, I work more, we still do those same things that we did in the beginning as in in terms of grassroots kind of building relationships with people in the community. We still do that, but now it's actually been elevated to where we work with major organizations um, within healthcare, within the community. I do a lot of public speaking events, um, partnerships with corporate companies now to raise sickle cell disease awareness on a, a level... That is way bigger than just what I do in my corner of Davidson County here in Nashville.
0: <laughs> so, uh, you know, it's it's for anyone who, you know, wants to learn more about breaking the sickle cell cycle, please uh, definitely um, visit the website and associated links. Or if you just search up Dr. Scott's name, you will see plenty of amazing articles <laughs> from huge publications. So, you know, one of the things that we like to focus on on the show as well, you know, it's definitely the tangible professional healthcare stuff, but then also the entrepreneurial endeavors as well. And I think I was thinking about it. I think you're the first guest that we've had that has a senior leadership title in one organization, but also has had an amazing, successful um, entrepreneurial endeavor outside of their job. So how has that balance been just juggling the two? Um, on top of, of course, also being a concerned, you know, mother as well. And then did you anticipate it, you know, at some point to get as big as, you know, the foundation has gotten?
1: Balance is a strong word. <laughs> I don't think I got this far by balance. And I don't say that in a a way to suggest that you should do this learn from me don't be better than me don't be like me if you are wanting to pursue this entrepreneurial journey um because balance is necessary because if you don't have balance you'll get to those days where you feel like you reached burnout and you start to question why am i even here why am i even doing this um so i will say balance is is very much necessary also don't reinvent the wheel Get you some mentors. If you want to, whatever your entrepreneurial spirit is leading you towards, find somebody that's already in that space and that is doing it well, partner up with that person, learn from them. Don't let your ego get in the way of thinking, well, I got this. I don't need any help. You will struggle. You'll struggle a lot if you go into it with that type of a mindset. So I would tell anybody, you know, if you wanting to to be on this entrepreneurial path, you can't do it alone. And um, I had a lot of support from my family and friends along the way to get to this point, because as you said, the organization has grown and it has not grown just because I did everything myself. I did have to rely on other partners, other people, volunteers (laughs) coming into the fold and sometimes it's hard because you don't want just anybody in your space. You really want people who are genuine, who are committed to the cause, who share the vision that you have. That's what you want to surround yourself with, not necessarily people that are here today, gone tomorrow. That's not what you're going to need to garner sustainability.
2: I think you uh, shared some really important tips there for anyone looking to kind of maybe advance down that entrepreneurial path or start their own thing. Um, Was your workplace supportive of you in the beginning when you were going on this journey of starting a separate foundation? And how did you navigate that? I think that's something that a lot of professionals who maybe want to do something on the side kind of struggle with.
1: Um, initially, my workplace was very supportive of what I am doing and the change that I wanted to make. And I think that because my workplace initially, it's been in healthcare the whole time. So they all understood the mission behind why I'm doing what I'm doing and you know, commended the work that I do. Even now, um, at the Department of Corrections, the work that I do is commended By the institution that I work for as well, so much so that I've actually done in services for our providers on sickle cell disease. So, again, just because people are in prison, that does not mean that they are subject to subpar care, even as it relates to sickle cell disease. So, my skill set, I think it is very transferable um because if i'm going to do something for the public that means everybody in the public not just a certain sector of the public uh would be privy to the educational information that i have to share
0: that's excellent um i think that's you know the dream uh honestly to be able to <laughs> kind of take you know you know what you're doing and also provide it as a value add um within your organization Going back to just sickle cell and the state of you know um, sickle cell care, particularly within the United States healthcare system, uh, obviously there are a lot of things that you have said that, that resonate with us because we have a particular focus just on health equity for our community. And for me, just hearing your story, it's funny because I am a – well, not funny, but I am a sickle cell um, trait carrier myself, and my father was, and when I was a little baby – uh, my mom had no idea what sickle cell was, and my dad had responded, "Oh, that's just a black people disease, yeah. right?" And that, well, and my dad was an educated, you know, educated brother, and so that was, you know, their thought. You know, I'm um, at some point, and I have a cousin who's one year younger than me who was born with sickle cell disease, and we quickly realized how, you know, severe um, this is a condition can be. And now that I've kind of evolved and I have a role in healthcare, I've been able to be at one of the nation's, you know, largest hospitals, largest academic medical centers. And I've been able to see the huge gaps within inside the system. And not only the bias, because of course, there's a lot of, you know, I think uh, news on provider bias, but just even from the administrative level, the financial level, you know, the reimbursement, all of these different things that I never thought about. And so our audience, you know, typically are people like Nigel and myself, you know, young aspiring professionals. So what would be one charge or something that you would want the emerging healthcare workforce um, to know about uh, folks who live and families who live uh, with sickle cell?
1: I would say when a person enters your institution seeking care, that you leave your biases about their care, about their condition, leave your biases at the door. Treat this person as if they were one of your family members. Believe them, just because they show up and they're in a pain crisis, but to you, they look perfectly fine. But sickle cell disease is what we call it, it's invisible because it doesn't look like the person may be physically in pain, but this person may be at a level 10, understand this is a condition this person has been living with their entire life. So naturally they've built up a tolerance. That does not mean they are not in pain. So when they show up and they say that their pain level is on the 10 and they need a specific medication to treat that particular pain, believe them. That is my charge. Believe them. It doesn't matter because I know people say, well, people try to show to the emergency room to abuse the system, to get drugs and get narcotics. Even if that is the case, you've given them one dose of medicine that allows you at least one to three hour window to do an assessment, to draw some labs, to get an observation, an observation period done, to collect some more data. That gives you at least one to three hours. To gather that background information, guess what? After three hours, if it if it doesn't pan out, it seems like this person was here erroneously. Well, you know, you can't win them all. But guess what? What if this person really was a sickle cell patient, experienced a pain level that was on 10, and you gave them that medicine? They have now experienced pain relief. Where if they stay there for a couple more hours, get some IV fluids in them, maybe another dose of their pain medicine, guess what? That person can now get up and be discharged and go home and live their life as if, you know, tomorrow's another day. As opposed to you denying them their pain medication, their condition getting even worse. And, you know, you with pain, that triggers a more of a stress response. That stress rep- response triggers their mental health conditions that fall into, you know, we've been here before. Now we may be triggering some PTSD type stuff that drives you off into this depression hole because they feel like I'm here by myself and nobody's listening. I can't get help. So you see how that can snowball all off of your one biased decision that you chose to make because this person didn't look like they were in pain. So you are going to make the decision to not give them what they need because it doesn't fit the description of what you understand. So one, treat people as human beings, believe them when they come in, do your due diligence, learn more about sickle cell disease. If you work in a center where you know there are a high number of minority populations that are present in your system, do yourself a favor and the patients that you serve, learn more about sickle cell disease.
2: You heard it here, everyone. Check your biases at the door. Believe people with what they're telling you. Um, you know, even if you make the wrong call, it's it's gonna be worth it for all the right calls that you're gonna make after that. Um, I think that was really good advice for providers and systems. Would you have any tips to offer for anyone who is struggling with this disease, or they have a family member or a child? Just any resources or things like that to kind of point those people towards.
1: I would say if you have sickle cell disease or you have a child with sickle cell disease, work with your hematologist and get your pain management plan together. You need to carry that pain management plan around with you as if it's, you know, your driver's license. You wouldn't leave home without it. Keep it on your phone. Keep it somewhere that's readily accessible because you don't know when an episode is going to occur. If you end up going to the ER, you're not really fumbling around trying to find like, where is my emergency care plan? Or why don't I have a plan? Because in that emergency care plan, it will delineate exactly how your pain episode should be managed. Should you find yourself in a hospital that does not have care plans for sickle cell patients, or you find yourself traveling and you have to go to somewhere emergently, they don't know about you because you're here from somewhere else you can show them this is your emergency care plan. And if you're in an area that has an electronic health record, I would make sure that that emergency care plan is a part of my health record that can be electronically accessed through any hospitals that cater into that same system. So preparation is key. If you stay prepared, you don't have to get prepared. That is a a key that I would say. And if you want to visit our website, there's a host host of sickle cell disease related information on our website to help you learn more and you know links to like the CDC's website as well to learn more about sickle cell disease. And again, I'm on Facebook. Um you can reach me via messenger inbox. I respond to all emails, um, uh, DMs about sickle cell disease.
0: <laughs> oh wow. I have to, I have um... to throw that in there. <laughs> of course. <laughs> Well, you know, Dr. Scott, this is, um, I'm actually surprised we're almost at the hour already uh, because, you know, time has flown by. But this has been, I think, an extremely inspirational and informative uh, conversation. Um, It really, really has. And, um, you know, we appreciate you uh, coming onto our platform just to share your story and your expertise. It is, I think, vital um, now and in the past and going forward that our community, but all communities know more. Um, about sickle cell disease and the impact that it has um so with that being said you know we typically uh ask is there any information that you want to share and you already have done that um Nigel do we have any rapid fire questions for today wasn't sure if we did
2: we we do so Dr Scott we typically end our episodes with three rapid fire questions they're usually a little on the sillier end because we do tend to ask some pretty heavy things on this show um, so let me know when you're ready and we'll get cracking with it
1: Okay, I'm ready. Let's do it.
2: All right. What's your favorite spot in your hometown?
1: Oh, my hometown?
2: Mm. Or we can do Nashville.
1: Okay. In Nashville, I love to go to what Manchester, and I want to say it's Cumberland Falls. Like, there's a waterfall in Manchester that I really, really like. Cummings Falls.
0: Cummings Falls. Yeah, I went there last summer. That's nice.
1: Yeah. Thanks, COVID. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, would you consider yourself a beach or a
2: mountain person?
1: Oh, beach.
2: Love it. Last one. What would you do with the million dollars donated to your foundation?
1: Oh, if I had a million dollars, I would start a wellness center and a wellness center where sickle cell patients or patients who deal with chronic illness can come into in lieu of going to the ER and we will focus on more of a holistic way of healing because pain medications are not the end all be all. I honestly believe that if we had more of a holistic approach in treating pain, that sickle cell patients and people who deal with chronic illnesses would fare much, much better. So I would take that million invested into a holistic wellness center geared towards um, pain management and sickle
0: cell
1: patients so anybody it. out that is listening you want to invest I'm just you know dropping some jewels out there that's that's where I'm headed
2: you've got an extra million burning a hole in your pocket and you want to help <laughs> out sickle cell patients you found a person
0: <laughs> absolutely well Dr. Scott again it has been um, a pleasure and an honor to have you on the show so thank you so much for joining us
1: Thank you guys for having me. This
0: has been awesome. Well, that's it for the episode. And we want to thank you for listening to the Healthcare Hustle Podcast. Make sure to check us out each month on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Stay up to date with the Healthcare Hustle fam by following our page on LinkedIn. The marathon continues, so keep on hustling.